Tonight, we want to continue on our theme that we've uh, been teaching ever since Lord's Day morning. And for those of you who haven't made them all, we've been talking about some things that, that uh, absolutely must change, some things that must not change. And uh, what are the differences and how can we get it, uh, the image of Christ into our hearts and into our minds? God does not accept us just as we are. He loves us just as we are. But he does not accept us just as we are. He commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17 and verse 30. And because of that, you and I, both in reflecting on that verse, ask ourselves, what do I need to do to repent? What is it that I need to repent about? Well, repentance is a word which we, as we've said, doesn't, it doesn't normally come up in our everyday language. But the word means to change. And so that's the essence of what we're studying tonight. We've been studying change, or we've been stu studying repentance all week. We've been studying about things that we really need to change. But one of the things I want to focus on tonight before we make an, another specific uh, application of this is how important it is to have the right knowledge of what to change about to really focus and look into the mirror that God gave us. In James, the first chapter, if you have your Bibles open, in James, the first chapter, we there notice that the Bible tells us, in James 1, we're going to start reading, if you will, in verse uh, 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but every man must be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, Therefore, putting aside, now here's one of those things that he describes using the clothing metaphor again. He says, this is something I want you to put off after I've just told you some things to put on. You've got to put on some of these things, put it, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's behavior he wants us to adopt. If we don't have that behavior, we need to repent of that and put these things on. But notice he says, I want you to put this, these things off be, uh, get away from the anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, or as the King James says, engrafted, which is able to save your souls. Now, he specifically talks about this scriptures, these scriptures that God gave us. He says these have a work. God designed them not to be a spiritual rabbit's foot, if you will, or some kind of talisman, whereas if you purchase a Bible, you've bought your ticket, all you got to do is show God at the gate of heaven that you bought a Bible and have it punched and you get in. That's not what this is about. He said the word God wants us to use, God wants us to use it and put it into our hearts and into our minds. That's what he's saying here. Receive the word implanted or engrafted. It means literally to put in, to put under the surface. And so the word has its work. James tells us that the word is important, very, very important to our understanding what it is that we're supposed to put off and put on in our life. How can we even know that we're supposed to put this on unless the word tells us? The very word itself tells us its purpose, and the Bible must be respected. Notice in the next few verses, verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word. I want you to underline that phrase, because whenever he says prove yourselves, 
He's not saying, I want you to prove that you have a copy. I want you to demonstrate is what he's saying. I want you to show that you have this word in your heart and in your mind. I want you to demonstrate it. Demonstrate, if you will, yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. There's a delusion that goes on with knowledge. We sometimes think because we know how to do something, we can do it. Well, you know, I've read books on fixing cars, but I can guarantee you there's a difference between what they teach in the books and what I can do on a car. I don't know about you, but that's the way it is. Sometimes there's a variance between that. And God says here, I want you to not only know the word, I want you to do it because just having a knowledge sometimes can deceive you into thinking that you're doing it. You know, many times Christians, people who have the word of God memorized in their life, use that knowledge as a substitute for obedience. They say, I'm smart, I know my Bible, but they don't do it. They don't obey the word. And that's what James is talking about. Don't be a person that gets deceived into thinking that just because you know your Bible, you're holy. Just because you know your Bible, you're obedient. No, you may know the right thing to do and still not do it. And so he says, here's the important point I want you to get. The word has a work in those who obey it, those who examine themselves, those who make sure that they're doers of the word and not merely a hearer, a hearer. Notice, for if anyone in verse 23 is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind or manner of person that he is, what kind of person that he is. This word of God reveals to us where we need to change. But a lot of times just having that knowledge, we go away and it brings about no real corrections. The word of God reveals to us how God sees us. We oftentimes don't use the word to check out and see how God sees us. If we don't have a mirror available, what do we do? Well, I know what guys do. They ask their wife, do I look okay, honey? You know, that's what we do. We ask our wife, how do I look? And if she loves you, she may correct you. Or if you look okay, she'll say you look okay. But if she's got a malicious spirit, she may see all kinds of stuff on you and go, yeah, you look fine. Go out and look like a clown. I don't care. She may not say that in her heart. But the fact of the matter is, is sometimes your friends aren't very helpful. Sometimes they don't want to do the hard things that friendship demands. The Bible says a friend loves at all times. Oh, but Proverbs says the most wonderful things. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Wounds of a friend. Sometimes our friends tell us we have bad breath. Sometimes our friends tell us, you know, we got toilet tissue on our shoe. Sometimes our friends tell us that things aren't all of what they're cracked up to be and we need to straighten up. But God doesn't say, I want you to depend on your friends. God says, don't use them for a mirror. Religiously, especially. He says, I gave you the Bible because you're always going to find different religious opinions about what's pleasing to me. And you're going to find somebody in the world that's going to look at you and say, you're okay. You know something? I don't care what you believe tonight, morally even, or ethically, you can find a religious group that'll support that. There are Christian religious groups that thinks polygamy is okay. There are Christian religious groups that believe homosexuality is okay. 
There are Christian religious groups that believe all kinds of behavior is okay. Different structures of the home, different definitions of the family, all kinds of things. But my friends, God doesn't tell us to check with religious groups to see if we're okay. He says, I gave you the word. I gave you the scriptures. I want you to look into them to see how I see you. Don't keep trusting everybody else. I want you to look into the mirror I gave you that reflects what manner of man you are. Notice, very once he has looked at himself and got away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he is. Verse 25, James 1. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, don't overlook that phrase. That's the key phrase. And abides by it. Notice, this, this man will be blessed in what he does. So, God gave us the word to bring about the changes that we need to make in our life. He says, this is a mirror. This is a mirror I want you to look into. I want you to look into that mirror, and I want you to see how I see you. And this is my word. I want you to look there. That's the source. That's the judgment, because you're going to find men that will give you all different kinds of opinion. The Bible talks about this process in a little bit different terms. In the book, in the scriptures, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, the Bible says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, what does it mean to walk by faith? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. Walking by faith and not by sight. Normally, we walk by sight, don't we? Normally, we look and we look where we're going. And we say, that's where I want to go. And we, we make an aim and we walk toward that and we can be confident. But what if we don't have our sight? We have a brother here that's, that's visually challenged. How does he do that? Well, he has to have other things that inform him, other kinds of knowledge to inform him so that he can walk uh, cautiously and safely toward a, a certain kind of place. He walks by faith. He literally walks by faith. But spiritually, I want you to know that God tells us we walk by faith as well too. How do we know what really pleases God without his word? We, we don't know. We have good guests, we have guesses, we have our conscience, but the Bible says we walk by faith. How can we walk by faith and not by sight? How can we do that? Well, first of all, he's saying it doesn't come from you. That's the point. Your sight often guides you, but I want you to walk by faith. Now, faith is something unseen. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, in verse 1, the Bible says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction about things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, he tells us what faith is. He says, faith is having some confidence. Faith is having some assurance. Faith is having a strong conviction. About what? About things unseen. Aha, that's what it means to walk by faith. In other words, we're not walking by our sight we're walking by faith in an area where we don't have that knowledge in and of ourselves. It's like walking in a dark room. Whenever I just walk without my sight, I may bump into the wall. I may make mistakes. I'm not going to try it here. But the whole point is, is whenever God who loves us informs us of where he is, then we can follow his voice, can't we? 
That's how we walk by faith. When God says, hey, follow my voice, follow my voice, follow my word. This is how you know. This is how you know the way. This is the way that is safe. Follow my voice. Listen to my words. Then we can walk confidently and know that this is pleasing to God. If not, we're just making guesses. In John 17 and verse 17, the scripture says, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Here's how I can know that I'm pleasing to God. I don't have to say how many people believe it. I don't have to ask how many religious groups believe it. Here's how I can walk by faith. I can know that the word of God reveals to me what truth is. And then I want you to make note of this passage. Romans 10 and verse 17. Romans 10 and verse 17. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, doesn't it? That's how I can know, that's how can I can be confident that what I'm doing is pleasing God is I have to come back to the word of God. The word of God which sanctifies me, sets me apart from sin. That word of God which calls to me in darkness, calls to me in my spiritual ignorance and informs me of how I can walk confidently in my walk before God. How can I know that I'm pleasing to God? How can I know? How can I know? I have the word of God given to me that causes me to look into it and I can see myself like God sees me. I can know what God's will is for my life even though he's not here to tell me, even though he's unseen to my eyes. I can have confidence in my walk before him because I look into the mirror, it reveals to me those things I need to change in. It tells me those things that I need to do to please him. That's how faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17. Oh, there are so many passages <coughs> that we could talk about tonight, but I, I just don't have time to talk about all of them. But, you know, there's so many Christians today that aren't using their Bibles. And I know one Christian... That he, it was really funny of him. I asked him where his Bible was, and he said, it's in the trunk of my car. I said, why is it in the trunk of your car? And he says, so I won't forget to take it to church. <laughs> you give your Bible a ride to church every Sunday? Yeah, and I carry it in. And I don't want to lose it, so I keep it in my trunk, so I won't forget to take it to church. I went, man, why don't you hand it down the row so we can give it to somebody who will use it? How many people have Bibles and don't use them? God gave us the word for a reason. He wants us to look into it, to see ourselves. And that is how we walk by faith. You can't go trust in every man, every woman in the world. You just can't do that. You've got to come back to the word. It will tell us what it is that we have to change in order to be pleasing to God. Now, a religious group may tell us what it takes to please them, but that's not necessarily pleasing God. You see? That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17 and verse 17. Well, what, how do, what is... Let me start again here. What is it that we're supposed to then find in the word of God? Well, the Bible tells us it records the image of Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Romans, the 12th chapter, as we've looked at before, that we are transformed, being transformed into the image of God. We, we've quoted Romans 8, and let's do it again. In Romans 8, chapter and verse 29, 
Notice what the Bible says here. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. The Bible says that's our purpose in this life, is the things that we need to change are, cha are things that do not reflect the image of Christ. If Christ is our life, if we're supposed to be Christians, it doesn't mean looking like Christ on the outside. I remember in the 60s, that tells you how old I am, so sorry about that, you know, uh, whenever it, there were people walking around in sandals and white robes and everything thinking that's what it meant to imitate Jesus. Well, my friends, Jesus wasn't concerned about the outer man, unless it was immodest or something. He was concerned about the inner man. And it's the inner man of Jesus that God, it's the character of Christ, it's the heart of Christ that God wants us to put into our hearts and into our lives. It's his compassion, it's his desire to please his Father in heaven. And so the Bible tells us here that God's purpose is for us to be conformed to his character or his image in that sense. As the word image is talking about inner character, I believe. That's what he's talking about. Well, now notice, go, go to Romans 12. If you're there, go to Romans 12 and verse 1. In Romans 12 and verse 1, <coughs> therefore, brethren, uh, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your New American Standard says, spiritual service of worship. King James did better on this one. New King James is real good. Which is your reasonable or rational service. In other words, it corresponds to reason that if God died for us, then we should be living sacrifices to him to show his, our appreciation. That's reasonable. That's rational. Somebody died for me, I owe them. I owe them. I need to honor them in some way. Notice verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. There's our, there's our change. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. In the Greek, this is the word metamorpho, which is literally where we get the word metamorphos, it means it's, it's what happens to a caterpillar when it turns into a butterfly. And he says, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the kind of change that's supposed to happen to our life. We're worms that turn into butterflies whenever we serve Jesus. And so he says here, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our lives are supposed to demonstrate our lives are supposed to explain, demonstrate the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's, what, that's our purpose. That's our purpose. My friends, as a Christian, you can't be a Christian without taking the purpose of the name. A Christian means follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just mean a state that you're in. Yeah, I'm a Christian, stamp it on my hand, but I can behave any way I want. God says that's not it. That is not it. You are supposed to be a transformed life, a life that demonstrates what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You have a responsibility if you wear the name. How many people don't know that? We have a responsibility if we wear the name to demonstrate, to prove by the way we live, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you'll remember, last night we showed that a lot of people substitute holy living with the assembly of the church. 
They believe if they go and they check in and they give three hours a week, they can do that without giving their life. And my friends, public worship is no substitute for a holy life. It is not. Don't get deceived into thinking that it is. That's what he's saying right here. We're supposed to have a transformed life so we can prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Oh, there's so much more. Let's go on down. Verse 3. For, uh, well, no, let's just go on. There are things that we need to get to tonight. That's, we've, we've talked about in Luke 6, 40, a disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Christ-likeness is our objective. And my friends, if you're not being Christ-like in your home, to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to your employer, to your neighbors, you haven't really grasped the authentic Christianity that Jesus Christ taught. Jesus Christ did not bring a form of godliness. He brought the reality of it. And that is what we, his followers, are supposed to adopt. And that kind of holy living is what we're supposed to be devoted to. But we could talk, we could preach a lot of, uh, we could scratch a lot of itching ears tonight by just talking about what happens in the assembly. And my friends, that's important. We must worship God in spirit and truth, John 4, 23 and 24. Don't get me wrong. But don't substitute that assembly for the holy life. You can't do it. They're both equally important. All of it's important. And so in our holy living, we have got to ask myself, is this the way Jesus would behave toward his children, toward his parents, toward a husband, and toward a wife? Am I reflecting what the Word of God teaches? Do I reflect my knowledge of the Word of God? When I read Ephesians 5, is it something people can see in my life? And can you preach what I practice? Does the word of God substantiate the way I'm behaving and the attitudes I possess? Well, tonight, let's talk about one specific thing. It's 15 after. I'm going to, uh, you know, Monday night I gave you, I, I thought they paid overtime, and so I went long. But last night I cut it off, and tonight I'm going to try to cut it off too. I get really in, enthused into some of these things. But tonight, I want to look at some primary things that the Bible says we've got to put off. If you'll turn to 1 Peter, once again, 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 1 through 3. Notice, let's talk about one thing where he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. We talked about that the other night. We talked about what hypocrisy was. It was that insincerity. It was that uh, sometimes majoring on the minors. It was that sometimes that... that that being hypercritical, and we talked about all of those aspects of it. But notice what he says here. All, all envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure. Notice what he says in verse 2. Long, and that word long there means desire earnestly. It's, it's like a romantic term. What happens when you long for someone? Well, it's something that you, you focus and you miss them, and you want them, and you want them to be with you. I long for them. And he says, long here, verse 2, for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. This is supposed to be a Christian's attitude. He's supposed to long for this word. It's something we're supposed to desire. I hope you're spiritually healthy enough that you have an appetite. You know, whenever the doctor asks you if you've lost your appetite, that's a sign that maybe not everything's all right. And spiritually, the same thing is true. Whenever a Christian does not long for the word, there may be some weakness, there may be some spiritual cancer, there's something going on in their life 
that's not right. Because newborn babes long for the milk of the word. They long for it. They look forward to it. They are satisfied when they're getting nourished on it. And that's what Christians are supposed to be as well. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. But let's talk about one of the things he mentioned. Like we said, we're going to get to one of them anyway tonight. One of the things he mentioned putting away in verse 1 is all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. I want to talk about envy for just a moment. If you've got your Old Testaments, please turn to Psalms. Psalm, if you will, Psalm number 73. In Psalm 73, the entire psalm is a psalm talking about the temptation of envy. Now, isn't that interesting? I didn't think envy was that big of a thing to put out of my life. Well, he says, as newborn babes, it's something that's supposed to be put out of our lives. First thing, first thing. What is envy? Have you, has anybody ever asked you, what is envy? Well, you, might not, you may say, well, I... I don't know what the words are, but I know whenever I have that feeling, I go, what is that feeling? How do you know that you've envied something or that you are envious of it? Well, I ask the young kids at the Whispering Pines congregation, I ask the younger ones, about 13 and 14, I said, uh, help me with this word, envy, and, and what is, how do you know when you're in, envious or not? And one of the little kids just hit it right on the head. He said, it's that uncomfortable feeling whenever somebody gets a new pair of shoes. <laughs> I said, from the shoes? He said, no, whenever they get shoes that I wanted, it's that uncomfortable feeling whenever I see them in those shoes. And I go, an uncomfortable feeling? Yeah. In other words, he's saying, I want them, and they got them. And it makes me feel uncomfortable about it. And I thought, well, that's, that's an interesting definition. But you know, it is kind of an uncomfortable feeling. Think about it for a minute. Everything's fine with you and your friends until they get a different kind of car. You're ha they're satisfied, you know, you're satisfied with everything until they get a, another house. And then something happens to you. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Uncomfortable about it. You begin to maybe get envious of them. Ah, that's it. Maybe it's their new boyfriend, their new girlfriend, their new bike, their new shoes, their new shirt. I don't care what it is, anything. Fill in the blank. It's whenever somebody else is blessed, and instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, it makes you feel uncomfortable. You go, yeah. You know, I thought, well, Glenn, you know, you're mature. You don't have these feelings very often. You know, do you? And I thought, Glenn, are you ever envious? I asked myself, Glenn, are you ever envious? I thought, you know, I'm really not envious of other people's cars. I know, they, I know they lose that new car smell. Just put a kid in it for a while, and it'll lose the new car smell. You know, Houses need maintenance. I've had houses. I know that they get old. You know, new this, new that. That's not it. Grandkids. <laughs> Somebody got a grandkid, and I went, Ooh, I wish I had one of those. <laughs> that's something, you know. That's something. You kind of go, man. I'd like one of those. So I asked my daughter, can I have a grandkid? <laughs> she says, if I help pay for shipping. But anyway, the whole point is, you know, it may be something weird. It may not be material. We're not talking about materialism here. Mostly when you use the word envy or covetous, you think about materialism. But guess what, folks? 
it doesn't just apply to materialism. It applies to, listen, any blessing that someone else has that you wish you had. That's whenever you know you're envious. It could be respect. It could be a blessing of of something else, some other kind. It could be the fact that they're healthy and you're not. It could be all kinds of things that create this sense of envy within you, this uncomfortableness that somebody else's blessing, that, that feeling of jealousy. And by the way, this Greek word is the root word for jealousy as well. In fact, many translators translate them interchangeably, jealousy and envy, because they're both, it, it conveys the same idea. The Bible says this attitude is devilish or evil. Notice in James, the third chapter. In James, the third chapter, there starting reading verse 14, 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, there's that word that's translated envy in 1 Peter 2. Notice bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, not spiritual, and demonic. Demonic. Look at that word there in verse 15. Demonic. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now here's where God exposes us to ourselves. He says, this is not heavenly wisdom. This is earthly wisdom. This is natural as opposed to spiritual. And it is demonic instead of godly. This is something that must be put out of our young Christian hearts. It's something that's got to be put out of it. Well, Glenn, you know, what is the difference between being motivated and desiring something and being envious? Good question. That is a good question. Because all of us are motivated to want certain things, Whenever we see things advertised, we may want some, uh, a good refreshing drink. You're not envious of that drink, yet you desire it. It's not wrong for us to want to uh, get a better house or get a better car or anything like that. That's not the point. It's not wrong for us to want to improve ourselves to be more respected. But envious has within that desire the quality of being irritated that others are blessed. That's indeed. It's being upset with someone else's blessing. The point is, is if we do it for ourselves, if we do it to improve ourselves, if we have a, a goal and we go after it, that's one thing. But to be irritated at somebody else's blessings is our sin. That's the point he wants us to get. And he says, I want you to get that out of your heart and out of your mind. You know, envy has hurt the church probably more than anything else. It really has. Envy and jealousy. In James, the fourth chapter, just go back on, go on to the next chapter. In James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. 
so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now there's where he says, where, where's the source of the quarrels? Where's the fighting among you? He says, it's your jealousy. It's, that's what's caused a lot of problems in the church. A brother will get a new car. And inadvertently, there's nothing wrong with buying a new car. But some other brother will be envious of that. And it'll create bitterness. It'll create jealousy and envy. And it becomes the source of trouble later on. All of a sudden, trouble shows up. And nobody connects. Nobody connects the problem with the new car. Nobody connects the problem with the new house. Nobody connects the problem with the new child, the new blessing, whatever it might be. But there is a connection. The connection is envy and jealousy. My friends, when things explode and there's no seeming connection, double check. If you're uncomfortable at somebody else's blessing, perhaps that's the problem in our hearts and our minds. But my friends, this is such a great temptation. You might say, well, Glenn, that's pretty selfish and that's pretty childish. That should never be a problem for us. Well, as Christians, you know, sometimes generally, we are jealous, we are envious of the wicked. In Psalm 73, uh, like I said, we were, let me read verse 1. Let's start reading it together. If you, if you open to Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel. Notice what he says. To those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. You know, a song, here in this psalm, the writer is saying, My feet came close to stumbling. And here's why. Notice, my steps had almost slipped. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there were no pains in their death, and their body is fat. I think that has probably changed through the ages. But it says they were blessed. Notice, they are, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is in their necklace, and the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Now here the writer is saying, look, I was perfectly fine living my life until I began to look at a wicked man one day, and I saw his arrogance and I saw the way he died, I saw the way he lived, all the blessings that he had, and I almost slipped. I almost slipped because I envied the wicked. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened? Whenever you've grown weary of serving God, and you do it, and you do it, and it costs you, and you're persecuted for it, and there doesn't seem to be any blessing, and those who are wicked just go act wickedly and seem to get blessed and blessed and blessed. And there's that little temptation to envy the wicked. The Bible says don't let your heart envy sinners. Don't let it happen. Proverbs 23 and verse 17, I want you to all memorize this passage. I want you to really think about its message, and I want to see if it affects your heart and your mind. Psalms 23 and verse 17 do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. You know, all the way through the scriptures, the Bible tells us of envious people. Oh, we could talk about so many tonight. Uh, because of envy, Cain slew Abel. 
1 John 3 and verse 2. Because of envy, the Philistines stopped up Isaac's well, Genesis 26. Because of envy, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, Genesis 37 and verse 11. Because of envy, men crucified the Lord, Matthew 27 and verse 18. Because of envy, the apostles were cast into prison, Acts 5 and verse 17. Envy is a big problem. Envy is a big problem. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 and verse 30, but enviousness is a rottenness to the bone. It's a rottenness. Rot that word suggests cancer. My friend's bone cancer is what he's talking about. In other words, it's cancer to the very thing that holds your body upright. It will erode the very thing that causes you to stand. Envy is nasty and horrible. It's a malignancy in your life. Wrath is cruel and anger outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? Proverbs 27 and verse 4. Envy is associated with all kinds of sin. I want you to notice how many times it's brought up. Envy and jealousy because they're the same thing. Notice in Galatians 5 verse 19. Let's just, if you're taking notes, please take some notes real quick and I'll repeat them twice so that you can write them down. In Galatians 5 and verse 19, notice what it says here. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy. There's the word right there. It means envy, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, factions, dissensions, factions, envyings. This word envyings is even more. It's in the plural, and it means having a heart that is, if you will, covetousness. It really probably should be translated covetous. But the whole point is, is he's talking about all of these things that are works of the flesh. They're deeds of the flesh. But notice the fruits of the Spirit, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the character, if you will, description that a Christian is supposed to have, those last fruits to the Spirit. But he said this other description is something that's not supposed to be in Christians at all. And notice in 2 Corinthians 12 and 20. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20. It says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you not to be what I wish, but may be found to you be not what you wish as well. For perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. He mentions all of these lists of debates and wrath and, and problems. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 4, if you're taking notes, it's associated with all kinds of evil, strife and railings, perverse disputings. Titus 3, 3, foolishness, disobedience, diverse lusts. Uh, Titus 3, 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Romans 1, 29. We don't have time to mention all the places that the word envy is found in the scriptures. But what is the remedy for it? What is the remedy for it? Now this may be kind of interesting. You may say, oh, Clank, Clint, now that I know this is something I need to put off, what do I need to put in its place? You know, the Bible tells us every... Don't, don't... Christianity is not a don't do religion. A lot of times people consider themselves just to be Christians because they don't murder, don't <laughs> steal, don't lie. You know, are you a good Christian? Yeah, I don't do a lot of things. 
Well, my friends, Christianity is stopping doing some things, but it's doing, it's positively doing some things. We need to replace the void. We need to stop doing certain things and then start doing other things to fill that void in our lives. And so the, what do we fill envy with when we put envy out of our lives? Well, we put in love because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, love doesn't envy. There it is. The solution to envy is love. Well, wait a minute. I, th- I think I love my sister, my brother. That gets- oh, really? Then why aren't you rejoicing with them? Or are you selfishly saying, I wish I had it and they didn't? That's not real love. Love is truly and honestly rejoicing with somebody who is rejoicing. Let me put it this way. One writer I was reading after this, Jay Adams, he talks about some of these things. He says, sometimes the best comparison is to make it, uh, uh, is to understand your feelings toward a child that gets an award. You know, do you, do you feel envious of your child whenever your child is honored? Whenever your child is honored, you kind of go, great, you did so good. And you're happy for them, aren't you? You don't, go, you don't kind of say, you know, honey, I really felt empty tonight. Whenever my child received the, that award, I just, all the lights just went off of me and I felt empty and lost. What do you say to somebody like that? Get a life. That's what you probably say. It's not all about you. <laughs> That's what you... If somebody really says that, you wouldn't say... Why would you be jealous of your son or your daughter getting an award? Give me a break. Because you love them, you want to see them honored. Can we make a parallel to the church? Yes. Whenever brother and sisters are blessed, it's not about what you don't have, it's about what they're receiving. Rejoice with them. Be happy for them. Be happy they got that car. So don't be asking to borrow yours. Be be thankful whenever they got that new computer. Be thankful whenever they got their blessing, whatever it might be. Because you're not supposed to be thinking about what you haven't got. It's not about you. It's about them. Rejoice with them. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. So love does not envy. A parent doesn't experience discomfort over the advantage and blessings of their children and neither should we to one another. The Bible said, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. Let's look at this passage because he just tells us to put off envy. Notice in Romans 13, I do want to, I'm going to have to speed on here, but Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, nor in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. He tells us here, whenever we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's going to automatically take off, take off envy in our lives. Jesus Christ wasn't envious. Jesus Christ wasn't envious. Uh, let me ask one more question, and then I'll bring our lesson to a focus here at the end. But you know what? Have you ever worked in an office with a lot of people? Have you, have, have you ever heard the petty 
stuff that goes on sometimes in an office. You know, somebody was disrespected. They disrespected me. They didn't wash my coffee cup. They, <laughs> they took my parking place and all kinds of the garbage. Did you know people get killed over that kind of stuff? People get killed? There was a boy killed over a pair of tennis shoes that he wore to school. It was a source of murder. Source of murder in school. Some of these tennis shoes. Give me a break. I don't care what your label says. Is, is the label on your clothes causing problems at school, at work? The kind of clothes you have or don't have? Does what somebody else wear causing you problems? It really is childish. And it really is not like Christ. Let's Christians, as Christians, we're not playing church tonight. We're not here scratching niching ears, folks. I'm trying to get really real. Since we're trying to imitate Jesus, jealousy is something that was no part of his character and it should have no part of ours. Let it totally get out of us. Let's think about others' welfare above our own. Envy is one of the works of the flesh. It is not a work of the Spirit. Therefore, we should not. If there's any place that a person should find refuge from envious pettiness, it should be in the body of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, right quick. Not that I speak from want, Paul says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. The Apostle Paul learned that whatever he had, he was going to be content with it. And that's what we need to be in this world. We need to learn some contentment. We need to put to death some materialism. We need to put to death envy and jealousy. Let's just learn. Paul said it was a secret that he had to learn, and it is a mark of maturity. Learn to be content. Learn to be content. We can overcome envy if we will consider what envy is, what the nature of it is, what its source is, what its cost is, the havoc that it's wrecked on the church, and exactly how much it is not in the image of Jesus Christ. So tonight, that, that's all we've got time for. I wish we could talk. I wanted to bring in hatred too, but... We're not going to have time to bring that in tonight. The lesson is yours. We've looked into the Word of God and we've saw one aspect of it and uh, one aspect of a character thing that we've got to change. Now tonight, this may or may not have applied to you, but one thing that we can do is teach our children not to envy. We can teach them about how to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and not whine about not having what other, all the other little kids have. My friend, you can teach your children very basically early on not to hate, and you can teach them not to envy as well. Don't any time your child it sometimes looks down on another kid because of the clothing they wear, that's something that really needs to be corrected. But more than that, it may be expected of a child, but never in an adult. Let us get it out of our lives. Let's make sure that we don't reflect to our children attitudes that are unworthy of following Jesus Christ. Let's make sure that we're not uncomfortable when somebody else is blessed. Okay?
because Jesus rejoices with those who rejoice, and he weeps with those who weep. So tonight, the lesson's yours. We don't have time to look at everything in the mirror <laughs> tonight. I would love to, but I can't have time. Tonight, if you have any questions about this or anything else, about the church or about the necessity, the need of, of, of looking into the mirror of the word tonight, then please just ask, and we'll attempt to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Tonight, if you want to know how to please God, well, I don't, we don't stand up here like politicians and say, trust me, I know. You need to ask a question of somebody who says they know. What do you know? Where in the scriptures is that? What scripture tells that? Oh, is it something you just imagined? Something you thought up? Something you think? Something you guessed? Or is this a word, what does the word of God teach? I want to know how to please God. Well, the Bible tells us what it takes to please God. Without faith, Hebrews 11 and verse 6, it is impossible to please Him. If you want to please God, you can, you can do all kinds of religious, or behave in religious ways, but without faith, it is total insincerity and hypocrisy. God says he's not pleased. EA, even though you give your body to be burned and have not charity, it profits nothing, 1 Corinthians 13. What's going on in our heart is important. So he says without faith, it's impossible to please him, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. In our faith, then, what do we do? I believe in God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he brought the message from God. What is it that he wants me to do? Jesus says, if you keep my words, then it, he it is who loves me in John the 16th chapter. Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus himself said in Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You know, he didn't have to say and is baptized not because if somebody didn't believe, they're not going to obey him. All he needed to say is, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. My friends, that's what Jesus told us to trust. If we trust him, we trust his word. And as a preacher of God's word, I don't know what churches either say that or don't say that, but that's what I've got to teach tonight because that's what Mark 16, 15, and 16 says. And it, I'm not making a guess about it. That's what it says. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. If you have a right to leave out baptism, I have a right to leave out belief. But who's going to do that? God says, don't you add to or take away from my word. So we're not doing that tonight. Tonight, this church did get together and vote on what it took to please God. We just try to follow the word of God. That's all it is. So tonight, the word says, Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. We've got to repent of our sins too. Acts 17, 30, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. That means we've got to make a choice that we're going to follow Jesus and stop sinning and start obeying. So we repent of our sins. And upon our repentance and upon our belief and, our, our, and we're going to go ahead and obey the Lord, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to confess Jesus Christ before men, Matthew 10, 32. It's not a one-time thing. Matthew 10, 32 says, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. We need to confess that we believe Jesus Christ is Son of God before men. 1 John chapter 4 makes it very plain that we need to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What do you believe? Peter was asked, Peter, what do men say that? Oh, one of the prophets. One of the set. What do you believe? I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God. That's what we need to stand up and say tonight. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon that confession, we're fit subject for baptism in Acts 8. And they both went down, both Philip and the eunuch, into the water, and he baptized him, and he went on his way rejoicing. 
Tonight, why is baptism so important? Why is immersion in water so important? I do want you to look at one last passage right quick. Please turn to Romans, the sixth chapter. In Romans, the sixth chapter, we're talking about change. And I want to talk about the important part right here. This last verse, I promise this is the last verse. (laughs) Usually at my home congregation, whenever whenever I say, uh, ask the brethren there, what does Glenn mean whenever he says, in conclusion? And they say it means absolutely nothing. But look at this passage right quick in Romans, the sixth chapter. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. With him. I thought I was only one in the water. No, we've been buried with him in through baptism into death, that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. Right there, folks. We're united with him in the likeness of his death. Baptism is a likeness of the death of Jesus Christ. He died, was buried, and raised. He says we do a likeness of that in baptism. We die to our sin. We're buried in water, not sprinkled. We don't sprinkle people here. Sprinkling dirt on somebody doesn't bury them, and sprinkling water on somebody doesn't bury them either. We are immersed in water in the likeness of his death and then raised to walk in newness of life. That's why baptism is so important. Because it brings about that change, that freedom from sin, that death to sin, and and a whole new life. So tonight, if you want to start change, that's the very beginning. It's obeying the gospel, the good news about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by imitating it in your life. Have you been baptized in the likeness of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in baptism tonight? If you haven't, we stand ready and willing to help you do that in our following of Jesus Christ. All of us, we're not here. We're not a a club for perfect people tonight. We're a bunch of imperfect people that are trying our best to imitate Jesus Christ, and we need your help. Won't you come and join with us tonight on that journey? Come with us. If you haven't obeyed the Lord, now you know at least some primary things to do, to put off and put on to do. Why don't you do what you know? You've looked into the Word. If you see that you need to do that, then why don't you let us help you do that? We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.